Hi everyone, I'm Ben. And I'm Will. And uh, welcome to this series of Will and Ben, the Wildlife Men. Hi Will, how's it going? Yeah, good thanks Ben. What have you been up to this week? Oh, I've mostly been sat inside writing some reports for some survey work I've been doing recently in Snowdonia. So it's not been as exciting as being up in the mountains themselves looking at things, but it's, I guess it's, it's equally important to do. Um, but yeah, not as exciting sightings this week. Um, yeah, still got, we've still got 15, 20 chuffs on the hill behind the house, which is really cool. Um, and managed to get some of the colouring combinations from the from the adult birds as well and find out, you know, where they've nested and which pairs they are and stuff, which is really cool. Um, but yeah, overall, a bit of a quieter week for me. How about yourself? Uh, yeah, oh, just before that, what about these chuffs? Do they, do they move? Uh, like, will you, like, so I'm down in Cornwall and we have uh, the Cornish chuff, I think. It, it was introduced, wasn't it? And they and we saw some a couple of uh, a week or so ago. Will could these Celtic populations ever join up? Do they move distances? Because obviously, with the color rings, you'll be able to see individual birds and where they go, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, they do intermix. I think it's rarer for Welsh birds to get down to Cornwall, but they certainly quite regularly intermix like within north wales at loads of different sites that are like 100 or more kilometers apart and um actually one of the birds that i saw at the weekend um or ye well yesterday actually um it had originally been ringed um not too far away on the thin but the first winter it was seen halfway down in, in mid wales near towin and then the next winter it was um in anglesey um so you know they go all over the place and no, no, they don't necessarily just stick to one place sometimes you know these these flocks can have all sorts of of different individuals from different populations in um but yeah no it's fascinating what it what it throws up um i'm not sure how many thin peninsula birds have ended up in cornwall i don't think there's many at least but it can happen but and they're they're crows so they're, they're in the crow family right why why do they live so exclusively on the coast or do they? Yeah, that is a good question. I think it's a combination. Well, that, well, actually, that's actually not entirely true. You get actually quite a big population in Snowdonia itself, up in the mountains. I was going to mention that, yeah, yeah, because I, when I was in the Pyrenees, as we're seeing all the yellow-billed alpine chuffs, yeah. there was one morning I ran up and I saw a red-billed chuff, yeah. like just alongside them exactly yeah so you get them both on the coast down in the mountains and i think it's it's similar conditions the sort of um you know low cropped sort of grassland areas that they they forage in on on inverts in the soil but also having those crags those caves those sort of areas that they have to nest in that are usually like in crevices and things um so yeah the sort of extreme extremist crows you know like the edges of the countries yeah Pyre crows or whatever they're like. Pyre crows, yeah. Pyrocorax, <laughs> such a great name. Such a great name. So cool. Oh. They've had a relatively sea-focused week as well. We um, we went to see, so down in Cornwall, we went to see the bioluminescence because it's been really hot in mid -summer. Oh, what? Oh, it's just beautiful just down on the, the Helford. And uh, it was like some of the best, I mean, you're on Barsi, you get beautiful stars, but 
some of the, it was the best stars I think I've ever seen in Cornwall and oh. you see everything shooting stars and then just looking at the sea it was like the sky was mirrored uh, it was kind of even more magical because you couldn't take a photo of it um, like the light level low light ability on my camera wasn't good enough and so you just had to be in it and you could just like see all of the uh, like little pinpricks and fireworks of light coming away from you as you're wading through and um, yeah we camped out and I've got Ren my dog down at the moment and so that was beautiful but um, we all went in and went skinny dipping in the <laughs> in the in the um, in the water yeah it was just the most like kind of magical experience yeah, I can imagine. Did you see, was the comet out, was Neowise in the sky? Uh, well, that's, that's the next thing. So after, after we went um, <clears throat> swimming in this beautiful, uh, in this beautiful bioluminescence, in fact, uh, you might have to cut this bit out, but I uh, <laughs> went for a wee in the, in the bioluminescence and it just looked like I had a sparkler. It was incredible. Um, I'm not going to cut that out, definitely. <laughs> Anyway, next thing, next night, we, me and Ren went off to see, <laughs> uh, went off to see this amazing comet, right? And hopefully if we get this out quick enough, it's going to be the ideal time for listeners to go and have a look because it's closest on the 23rd of, of July, isn't it? Absolutely. Yes, I went up to the north coast because looking, it's about northeast in the sky. And if you look at the lightest area of the sky about 11 or 12 o'clock you can just see this most amazing thing in the sky like it's so obviously moving it's got this huge tail but it's stopped still it really like kind of messes with your perception but yeah best times are just after sunset or like 11 ish and then um apparently the best most beautiful time is in the early morning like just before sunrise because the light of the sun reflects off the comet's tail and wow. it's this fire going up and just I've, imagine how like important or amazing it would be for all these early people early humans watching the skies and it's the same with bioluminescence right how, how do you explain this sort of magic that's happening all around you oh, it's so cool to think about it just it blows your mind whenever you stand and just look up into the stars on a starry night doesn't it when you start thinking like interstellar sort of you know distances time scales and everything it just blows your mind it's um awesome i still haven't seen the comet up here sat in the mist on top of money through it's been abysmally cloudy um so i'm hoping tonight it's meant to clear a little bit so i think i'll try pulling an all night or something until it clears because I am not missing a once in a six thousand years maybe just get to the top of um a mountain or something maybe that would be the that'd be the ideal yeah well in instead of looking upwards into the skies at far away comets and stars and the like this week's uh podcast from you is is quite different heading inwards into the earth's interior isn't it yeah definitely we're gonna head down um into a cave and you'll soon come to realize that it's kind of a magical cave we seem to flip from my village in north wales to new zealand and croatia and all these places but yeah it's this fantastical cave and it's it's all about the life below the surface wow 
That sounds epic. I can't wait. Should we delve in? Let's go. In my village, there is a cave. High above the earth, hoverflies and other migratory insects move purposefully through the jet streams. The meadows of North Wales far below, heady with pollen, dance with butterflies in the late summer sun. A bilberry bumblebee, drunk on nectar, aims itself at a nearby thistle flower, launches, mostly misjudges, and crashes into the soft purple florets with a grumble of vibration. A ewe chews lazily, blinking her eyelashes at the persistent flies. Swifts shout high above. Across the meadow filled with life, thick with light and colour, follow a badger track used by generations and generations of the same set. Ducking under a barbed wire, spikes collecting wool of adventurous sheep, and down the bank of the river, gravel chattering underfoot. Mayflies waltz here in the golden dusk, seizing their ephemeral time in the light. Sandals off and into the river, gripping rocks to the other side. The cave appears, at odds but, somehow, at one with the colourful world, settling the balance between light and dark perhaps. A mouth for the limestone rock face, a cavern of darkness, the entrance to the underland. Light saps away instantly, with the first corner turned in this underworld labyrinth, but the contrast between life and non-life is not as clear-cut. The cave entrance in the first few chambers are the home of the troglophiles, the cave lovers. These animals are a pigeon, or surface-dwelling, species that have moved populations into the cave, yet still so- rely, that still rely somewhat on the overland for survival. Bats are example of troglophiles, sleeping in caves by day and feeding on insects above ground by night. Spiders live here too, rarely making webs and instead scavenging or dropping onto their prey, including woodlice and flies which have just emerged from their larva deep in the cave. Watching the cave spider, Metaminardi, common in caves across the UK, is actually a fairly endearing sight. Although, initially, you have to get past the fact that it is a relatively intimidating spider with a 7 or 8 centimetre leg span. Watching closely reveals that it has a beautiful abdomen, full of the swirls of autumnal colours. These spiders lack detailed eyes, and so instead rely on touch to move tentatively using their long front pair of legs to pad out their future paths. As mentioned, spiders living in the caves occasionally feed on flies emerging into the light in their development period in the dark. The fungus gnats of New Zealand are some such flies. Arachnocampa luminosa, the fly's Latin name, finds food by dangling long threads of silk from the ceiling of their cave. At regular intervals in the silk, droplets of incredibly sticky mucus are placed. However, these gnat children do not simply rely on luck that their food will fly into their trap, no. They glow with bioluminescence, the intensity dependent upon how hungry they are. And this light shines down the silken thread, a 
attracting their light-loving prey. These fascinatingly luminous creatures create the famous Waitomo glowworm caves in New Zealand and are an entrance to the underworld for the Maori people. The walls of the cave grow closer. The last, the bioluminescent light fades to nothingness. The ground angles deeper into the earth. The passage splits, the labyrinth becoming complex, cold air rushing up and the distant clatter of a subterranean stream. Distance is hard to judge here in the flickering torchlight. Time, too, ebbs and flows with sentient wants. In the tightest squeezes, the immeasurable weight and the sheer matter of the rock surround is oppressingly tangible. But in the huge chambers where echoes soar and footsteps boom, it feels like an infinite, albeit slightly alien, world. Early humans blew red ochre in, over their hands pressed to the walls of the cave, creating inverted handprints so full of life that they connect the 40,000 or so year difference in barely a breath. But although the colour remains, the meaning of these prints found in painted caves from France to Papua New Guinea have been lost. Are they simply a mark of human presence? Perhaps they are art, or perhaps they are a warning, preventing access of the living to the deeper world, a world where surely only the dead can walk. The deep cave has always been shrouded with a cloak of mythology. In the caves of the stories of the Slavic crunchy countries, the Hajdi live. The Hajdi are winged dwarf-like creatures who dwell deep underground and are messengers of fate. They are said to dwell in the deepest of caves. In a Croatian cave system, there is a chamber 980 metres below the surface. And in this chamber, there is a true troglobiont animal that lives only in caves and has no connection to the above world, in contrast to the troglophiles which cling to the near surface. The animal that lives here is, is called Troclocadius hajdi, named after the winged dwarfs of the mythology, and is a ghostly midge. The midge live, lives her life fully separated from the surface, almost one kilometre of rock above her. And she is a she also. This species has no males as they are so rare and therefore the chances of coming across another of the opposite sex so far below the surface are far too low to be a viable survival strategy. What this midge does is re reproduce completely asexually, negating the need for males entirely. These fascinating creatures are the world's only known flying troglobiont. All other known creatures that live solely in caves, and these number over 21,000, are all ground-dwelling. These midges have lost all sight, and instead have evolved long, pale limbs which they hold out in front of them during flight, her legs acting as proximity sensors in the perfect dark. No one really knows what these midges do other than fly. It is thought that they do not feed as adults, and they lay their eggs in the streams running down the rocks, their children feeding sparingly on the tiny morsels of nutrients washed down through the endless rock. A kilometre below the surface, the cave ends. No further can we travel, but the tale of life in the underworld is not yet finished. 
miniature rivulets of water are seeping down into the rock at our feet, as the dead of the Greeks crossed the river Styx, ferried by Charon to Hades. We must now follow the water into the realm of the Stigobites, animals that live in the water at the entrance to the other world. A South African mine reaches nearly four kilometres down into the planet. The water here is now so close to the mantle that it is heated to nearly 50 degrees C and is almost completely devoid of oxygen. In a hugely and kind of wonderfully hopeful experiment, researchers filtered through over 30,000 litres of this water and it was brought to the surface in search of life. Incredibly, a tiny nematode worm less than one millimetre long was found and named Halicephalobus mephisto. Living so deep in the earth, in such inhospitable conditions, feeding on the occasional bacteria that drifted past. The water this worm was found in was carbon dated to be between 3,000 and 12,000 years old. And scientists believe that this little worm, or the ancestors of it, were washed down into the cracks of the earth by ancient rainwater all those years ago, adapting to deal with the negligible oxygen and heat. Back now, retracing steps through the chimerical chambers and passageways into the gloaming light of the upper cave and out to the surface where the crashing, riotous, colourful upper land continues. Humans growl back in their cars from work. Wrens stake their territories with deafening song. Foxes yowl in the dusk light. Worlds apart from the dark, relatively unknown and certainly quiet underland whoa that was so cool well i absolutely love that it's um just blows your mind you know the the adaptations that species develop beneath the ground and in those just extreme environments that, oh yeah that, that was so cool really enjoyed that <laughs> thanks ben yeah it's it's just so interesting isn't it and there's so much we don't or well, at least I don't know about case, but so much potential, like because we obviously can't see what's under our feet. There's just so much, so much potentially there to learn, and like all these animals you're talking about, the different um, adaptions and things, and these are all animals that have gone down into separate cave systems, and then been isolated from other individuals of their or other populations for what millions and millions of years potentially. And so each individual cave system could have entirely different species, um, even ones like right next to each other. If the caves aren't connected, then these animals will probably have evolved in similar because they got under the same uh, same sort of uh, conditions. But the because they're separate, there'll be different species, and that always makes me think. I was in France this year actually looking at. Um, some of these wonderful cave paintings in the in the Pyrenees and I love the cave paintings right but also scurrying across the floor near the entrance was this amazing cave cricket with huge long antenna and massive legs and wow. tail and I was just thinking that, that that this cricket would probably be quite specific to this cave system and yeah it's just and then one in the next valley will probably be 
specific to them. They'd never ever interact because they're trapped in these caves. And that sort of thing is just incredible, isn't it? Yeah, it's, yeah it, it does just blow the mind. I mean, the ohm, that crazy organism that you know lives in the in the caves in sort of like Slovakia and, and regions like that it's just incredible I mean I would Maybe I would love to go yeah they really are I'd love to go exploring some of these places to see some of these species I think probably the most elaborate ones I've seen in the UK are like you know cave spiders <laughs> you know and maybe the odd lesser horseshoe or greater horseshoe bat but yeah it is fascinating and the cave paintings as well I would I've never seen them myself but I know you're you know you're really really interested in these and you've actually seen some of the ones in like France you were saying in France but you're also in Spain as well right yeah and I don't know it's just such an amazing feeling like these humans which are up to 40,000 in some cases like 60,000 years in the past making these marks on the walls and yeah we're in uh the alta maria caves and the el castillo caves of northern spain and on the walls there there was just like kind of an abstract shape like some triangles and they were carbon dated using like this calcite or something they dated this calcite growth had grown over the um oh yeah okay the sort of painting and then so researchers could take bits of the calcite and then carbon date it back. And they worked out that it's at least 64,000 years old, this one. And that means that it either um, we're wrong about the time that Homo sapiens arrived into, into Europe or that it's about, because that they think Homo sapiens arrived around 40,000 years ago, but they think that this could have been done by Neanderthals. They were. 64,000 years ago and it's just there's just so much to learn and know and um and so many important things as well and we in in the same cave in Las Monedas cave there's a um drawing of a of a reindeer and it's got a smile on it because around the 12,000 years ago mark they started putting emotions on their animals and and it's just yeah I don't really know whether I've got a good point to all this rather than just like going on about all these amazing paintings. There's these um, <clears throat> ones that we saw in the Pyrenees and each individual cave had like a different animal. So there is one um, in the in the Neo Valley and or the Grotte de Neo in Fran- France and it had, it was all very focused on like bison and things like that. Whereas uh, there's the, there's, a cave called Peshmerl a bit further north and it was just full of mammoth paintings and the wow. styles were completely different as well like there was um the mammoths were all done with two or three or maybe four brush strokes whereas the bison and the um ibex and things like that in the neo cave were really really intricate and very lifelike and yeah it's it's art and, and it's incredible to see and have that connection. I was talking about those handprints in the podcast as well. And in El Castillo Cave, in northern Spain, there's like 40 of them on the walls. And it, it doesn't really feel, I mean, you could see it as threatening, but it doesn't really feel, it just feels that just so incredibly human, that connection. 
there and and um yeah so and so much is important about caves because obviously humans for many thousands of years lived in in the caves because they provided excellent shelter but also they found they're so important like the we spoke briefly about them being entrances to underworlds and many or you know, the other world in many cultures like the maori and those amazing waitomo glowworm caves and it's just all I don't know, there's just something about them isn't there just something so interesting like my family my uncle is such a keen caver and my grandpa as well and also each basically every almost every christmas me and my cousin chris we um we kind of jumped down this a cave in somerset because somerset's such an excellent uh place holding and we, we sort of leave everybody at nine or so in the morning on christmas day spend five or six hours down a cave and then come out again it's just such a kind of exhilarating experience to go through and I remember it was quite a wet cave like full of water over Christmas and we got down through one of these horrible they're called sumps where the ceiling of the, the ceiling of the cave drops below the water level and so it just looks like the end of the road for the cave but then you duck underwater and like squirm through like it's kind of horrible actually but like you can't can't breathe obviously and a couple of meters then you come out the other side it's such an exercise of trust <laughs> believing that there's the other side but what was cool about that is once you got past a couple of these sumps then you i was like looking around on the floor and there were caddis flies like caddis fly uh had emerged and they'd obviously just been washed down from uh the stream above but you can see that how like the midges the tropicaladius midge that i was chatting about can get down there and yeah there's just i certainly don't know enough about it but it's like it's just such a fascinating area of study and i'd certainly love to be a cave art guide for a while or something like that <laughs> I, I think you'd make a good one i think you'd make a good one uh, I, I mean likewise it's really it's really made me much more enthused and like inspired to do more underground just listening to that again because I've I've done a bit of caving in the past I've been down like the slate mine quarries in North Wales with my dad and down some of the some of the tin mines in Cornwall when I was at uni you know looking doing the bat surveys with the bat conservation trust that was amazing you know exploring the 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 historic tin mines and coming across all sorts you know you get the herald moths that sort of you know overwinter and hibernate in the in the cave system and and it's yeah it's just a treasure shows of treasure trove of discoveries isn't it and yeah, yeah absolutely thrilling maybe, absolutely thrilling maybe when i'm back up in a couple of months we should get coping oh, i think so let's do it i mean you could still socially distance if that's required <laughs> exactly <laughs> yeah no that sounds great amazing yeah well, i really enjoyed that well that was awesome and yeah next week um i'm gonna try and branch out into something a bit different i'm gonna try and do something that isn't a bird which might be uh you know we'll see how that goes yeah nice one well well yeah see you next time bye yeah,